It's time for Valley Writers Read, a production of Valley Public Radio featuring the talents of writers from Central California. Here's the host of our program, Franz Weinschenk. Good evening, friends. Tonight, a story about a young woman cub reporter trying to prove herself among some closely-knit old-timers on a newspaper called The Valley Voice. It's a story of danger, anxiety, and many surprises. Here's Fresno's own Bonnie Hearn Hill to read the opening chapters of her novel entitled If It Bleeds. If It Bleeds, Chapter 1, Sunday, June 3rd, 2.30 p.m. The San Joaquin Valley in summer was hotter than Mexico and hell put together, Corina Vasquez's father always said. At that moment, she would have settled for either locale, anywhere but the Valley Voice cafeteria, where thanks to the new management's cost-saving measures, the heat was almost as stifling indoors as out. Nothing warm about the way her co-workers were treating her, though. Corina bought a glass of chai tea, paid the cashier, and looked around. If the studied lack of interest of the others in the cafe were any indication, nobody was going to invite her to share their table. Might as well take the tea back to her desk. At least she could get some work done without Matthew Henderson breathing down her neck. She'd just started back down the hall when J.T. Malone, the Metro editor, dashed out of the elevator. He put on the brakes when he saw her. Where the hell's Henderson, he asked. Dressed down by his standards in a white shirt and chocolate brown slacks a shade darker than his skin, J.T. was the only person in the building who looked untouched by the heat. They had been easy with each other once, almost friends, but that had all stopped when Ivy Dyser, the new managing editor, had promoted Corina to Matthew Henderson's assistant. He's off today, she said. It is Sunday, you know. Where'd he go? He's not at home, not answering his phone nor his email. He'll be in tomorrow. What's so urgent? J.T. hesitated, then said, as if she'd forced it out of him, Got a lead on something big. A body's been uncovered outside of town. P.D. source says it's the mayor. For a moment, Corina was taken aback. Wes Shaw, her Wes, was mayor now, but J.T. wasn't talking about him. Her brain processed the scant information and, in doing so, reminded her that Wes Shaw was no longer hers and hadn't been for almost a year. You mean Tina Kellogg? That's what I said, the mayor. Shock gave way to emotion. Tina Kellogg dead. It wasn't right, but it was what everyone suspected after she hadn't returned from a trip to the coast, hadn't made her house payment, hadn't contacted any of her friends. Corina fought the tears that came with the realization. That's so awful. She was such a decent woman. Yeah, J.T. studied her with even more intensity than usual. If we can't find Henderson, I guess I'm going to have to send you out there. I guess. We don't have time to look for him. She began walking as she spoke, heading for the stairs, adrenaline building. Just tell me where they found her. I'm on my way. Wait. J.T. reached for the cell phone on his belt. Let me try Henderson one more time. Corina whirled to confront him, seeing it all there in his face, the suspicion, the distrust, the damned, rotten doubt. It was the way all the old-timers looked at her since the promotion, as if she were after their jobs. 
Your call, J.T. You want me to cover this or you want to stand there talking about it while the TV stations grab the story? Moisture glistened on his forehead. He glanced at his watch, then at her. A man without choices, she thought. An editor who knew that live or die, the only real enemy was time. Okay, he said. Get going. Even as she rushed for the door, she silently cursed him, he who should know better than anyone, for how she felt trying to prove herself in this world that regardless of what anyone said or pretended was still run by white males. Chapter 2, Sunday, June 3rd, 3.20 p.m. The smell hit her first. Even across the field it carried like the stench of the stockyards, only more cloying, Standing outside her car, sun hammering down, Corina fought the reflex to gag. She'd been so intent on getting a decent story and proving herself to Henderson and the rest of the staff that she hadn't stopped to think about how she'd react to the grim reality of murder. And now here it was, in a decomposed heap, just across the yellow tape, a few hundred feet ahead. A company station wagon pulled up beside her, and Wally Lorenzo, the photographer, stepped out. He nodded to her on his way to unload his equipment, an old guy with a permanent frown that seemed to deepen when he looked at her. Talented photographer, though, in spite of his dandruff-flaked thick glasses that didn't stop him from seeing the story behind a shot. The editors always said you didn't have to crop Lorenzo's photos. He cropped them himself when he took them. "'How'd they get you out here?' she asked. "'Changed my hours a few weeks back. "'Needed one more person on weekends.' "'He ran his free hand through salt and pepper hair "'that was more salt than pepper these days. "'I'm sorry,' she said, "'then wondered if that were the right response. "'Doesn't matter. A job's a job. "'Better get to work.' "'He trudged ahead in the direction of the taped-off area, "'humming softly. "'That smell, God, he must be faking his nonchalance.' This couldn't be something one learned to tolerate. How many of these scenes had he photographed? How many bodies that used to be human, mutilated and decaying in any number of unsavory locations? Even the officers beyond the yellow tape wore masks. A group of them scribbled notes and clicked photos of something at the bottom of a dried-out canal. Corina watched them, not sure whether or not she was relieved she couldn't see the body, as she followed in Wally's path through the vacant field. Who the hell was she trying to kid? She was a business reporter. The closest she'd ever been to death was fleeting glances at the waxy replicas of her grandparents in the relative safety of a funeral home. She hadn't asked for this promotion, but she had to prove herself, especially to old-timers like J.T., Wally, and Henderson, her own supervisor, waiting for her to fail. She would prove herself, too. She just had to learn the ropes— and the sandy-haired officer guarding the site where Tina's body was being unearthed was as good a place to start as any. He looked up from his clipboard when Karina approached. His unlined face set his age at 30, 35 maybe. His experienced eyes of appraisal told a different story. Hot enough for you? It was a usual greeting of two strangers meeting in the middle of a San Joaquin Valley summer, even two strangers meeting over murder. I hear tomorrow will be worse, she said. We can count on more rolling blackouts, that's for sure. He did not appear bothered by either the weather or the nature of his job. He had the demeanor of a mortician, a smile, a friendly attempt at empathy. Then once the pleasantries were exchanged, a voracious return to business. 
I'll need to get your name. Corina Casares Vasquez, she replied in a precise voice that just barely hid her distaste of the activity near the freshly dug earth a few hundred feet from where they stood. Valley Voice newspaper. That's a mouthful. He flashed her a smile, then returned to his clipboard and the job at hand. Corina, he began. You spell that with a C or a K? C. She walked him through the rest of the drill, explaining that, yes, both names were her last name. No hyphen, thank you very much. New to the voice, are you? Just to this beat. He glanced at the clipped-on ID that jutted out from her vest. His eyes darted back and forth as he compared the image there to the real thing. I guess it's you, all right. He studied her feature by feature, from straight hair to her jeans and vest, both of which suddenly felt too tight. Our security supervisor takes new photos once a year, she explained. The solemn, swollen face on the laminated strip of plastic reminded her of how for weeks after Wes left her, she'd cried every day, to work, from work, sometimes sitting at her desk, staring at her computer while trying to squeeze back tears. She thought she'd hidden it, but looking at her ID, she realized how obvious her pain had been and how far she'd come. She looked away, vowing to ask Verna to take a new photo at once. What can you tell me about what happened here? There's not a whole lot to tell. Two kids making out in the vineyard spotted the victim's shoes sticking up from the dirt in the canal. They investigated and discovered the remains. Karina shuddered. Man's shoe or woman's shoe? He swallowed noisily as if she'd glanced up and caught him chewing gum. You know I can't talk about that. You guys have been hounding me around the damn clock, and we haven't even taken the body to the morgue yet. To cops, all reporters were guys. She considered pointing out the fact, but thought better of challenging him. Forcing the image of the skeletal foot from her mind, she cut to the chase. We heard it was the former mayor. Lots of former mayors in Pleasant View. Last I checked, Tina Kellogg was the only one missing for three months. We heard belongings of hers were found at the scene. I know what you heard, he said. That's what happens when officers talk off the record. There's no such thing. You guys don't respect it. We do respect it. It's your guys who run their mouths and then try to change the rules on us. His jaw stiffened and she wished she'd kept quiet. I can't tell you anything else right now, he said. You want any more information, you check with the coroner. Better get out of the sun, too. You ask me, you're not cut out for this beat. The foul air closed in, threatening to prove him right. I'll get used to it. Something akin to sympathy crept into his pale eyes. Takes a while. I guess so. Thanks for your help. Sorry I couldn't give you more information. You know how it is. I understand, but it would help a lot if you could just tell me why they're withholding her name. Is it because they have to notify family members? He nodded. Part of it. But in the case of a public figure, we have to take more precautions, even when we're sure. I didn't mean to hound you, she said as if the interrogation were over and she were leaving. It's just that our source told us there'd be an absolute ID. It's not absolute until the coroner does it, he said, as if lecturing a criminology class. We still have to go through the motions, even in a case like this, where we find ID on the victim. She jumped on it. But if you have personal items of hers, a purse, say, a driver's license, takes more than that. So, she said, as if playing a game of speculation, who do you think killed her? He shrugged. Who knows? She thanked him again and left. 
An ornate for sale sign stood next to the entrance to the main road. The poor farmer who owned this vineyard wouldn't be selling it any time soon. On the road, she passed a Channel 5 van driving in. It didn't matter. She'd learned what she was sent here to find out. She could go back to the paper and tell J.T. his source had been confirmed. The body in the field was their missing former mayor's. But first she needed a shower, and she needed to shampoo the smell of death from her hair. A few minutes past five, she parked her Corolla in the voice parking lot. The sun-baked asphalt still radiated heat. She tried not to think about the source of her excitement, but it was there like a shadow she glimpsed from the corner of her eye. A woman was dead, a public servant, who despite her flaws had done a damn fine job as their backward city's first woman mayor. A security guard on a bicycle stopped and walked Corina to the ramp, leading to the side door. She lifted her ID to another young, uniformed man at the guard station, then followed the long, polished hall, past the executive offices on her left, through the art and features departments. Metro buzzed like a single engine, made up of countless coordinated parts. The staff moved in sync, each a segment of that miraculous 24-hour machine called a newspaper. The front page was a last-minute job. The above-the-fold piece covered the disappearance of two DEA agents, a man and a woman in Ensenada. Norman Flanagan and Roxine Waite had uncovered a scheme by the drug cartels early in the week. No one knew if the kidnappings were related. That's all they needed. War hawks, including and especially Governor Craig Minlow, were demanding military intervention, claiming the Mexican government was involved. This would worsen an already volatile situation. Metro staff members had made last-minute phone calls to Highway Patrol and Fire Department sources, checking to see if there were any stories grisly enough for the front page. If it bleeds, it leads, they always joked. For the first time, the meaning of the mantra hit home. Find a really gruesome story, and you'll lead on A1 above the fold, as she'd be doing tomorrow, unless something bloodier occurred somewhere else. Because a public figure was dead, she was getting a break. It was that simple and that complicated. J.T. looked up when she passed his office, then waved her over. His closely cropped hair and expansive forehead exaggerated the arch of his eyebrows, giving him a cynical look he worked a little too hard to live up to. It was impossible to relax around him. She suspected that Henderson maligned her abilities at every opportunity, and she had neither the talent nor the taste for sucking up to management, even when the management person in question was somebody she had once liked and respected. It was Ivy Dicer who had engineered her promotion a few months after stepping into the managing editor job, vacated when her predecessor made one of those convenient lateral moves that were so prevalent with new management. So clueless was Ivy that when she informed Karina of her new position, she immediately asked whether she wanted to be called Hispanic or Latina. Mexican, Karina had told her, stunned that Poison Ivy, as they called her, could be so blatant as to the reason for her good fortune. I'm Mexican. J.T. met her at the doorway to his office, a sparse room, except for the numerous photos of his vacations to Jamaica. You get it, he asked? as if he'd sent her to Starbucks for a latte? She nodded. Cop wouldn't confirm anything on the record, but he made it clear. Same here, but we can still say our sources believe the body is hers. Where the hell is Henderson, anyway? 
I can write the story by myself, J.T. I'm sure you can. Matthew knew her is all. You never even met the woman. Sure I did, right after I first came here. Remember that Hispanic scholarship thing? You and I went together. In fact, I was still in the business department. He nodded and gave her a cryptic smile. That's right. Janie sent her entire minority editorial staff, you, yours truly, and Linda Wu in features. Finally, common ground. Minority quotas. That's all we are to them, she blurted. And 20 years ago, when I started, we'd play hell getting a job here at all. His eyebrow arched even higher, and he enunciated carefully. I have been the first black at every paper I worked for, lady. It hasn't changed that much. Dizer would have me out right now if it weren't for those minority quotas. I just meant, I know what you meant. Now stop feeling sorry for yourself and write that story. Henderson can fill you in on everything he has on Tina Kellogg later. For now, just cover the basics. Widow takes over husband's construction business, forges a career in politics, leads the city at a time of unprecedented growth. What took her from there to, where'd they say they find her? A vineyard, she said, still stinging from his reproach. What took her from there to the dusty vineyard her body unclaimed? Something like that. You sound a little television, if you don't mind my saying so. That's why I'm the editor and you're the reporter. Now go write it. What about Henderson? He shrugged as if unaware of the silent war raging right under his nose these past two months. He's not here, he said. Chapter 3 Sunday, June 3rd, 6.30 p.m. In spite of what he said, Corina knew J.T. wished Henderson were here. He didn't like her, maybe just didn't trust her, but he didn't know her either. Henderson had made sure of that. The incandescent ceiling lights illuminated the L-shaped desk butted up against the outside wall of Henderson's office. The Associated Press style book, thick with yellow sticky notepapers, stood sandwiched between the dictionary and strunk and white on Karina's desk. She ignored the blinking red light indicating phone messages, pulled up her chair to the computer, and called up the archives. Tina had disappeared in March, a week before her 44th birthday, leaving behind everything but her cell phone and the clothes she was wearing. When her son couldn't reach his mother on the phone, he reported her missing, and although no one said the word, let alone printed it, Corina knew they all suspected murder, another woman who ended up the loser in some weirdo's version of get even. The city council held an emergency election and filled her position with Mayor Pro Tem, Wes Shaw. Don't, Corina warned herself, don't even think about him. She forced herself to concentrate on Tina Kellogg. Every image she called up on her computer screen looked vibrant, alive. Tina at election headquarters, winning by a landslide, hugging a supporter. Tina in a pair of jeans and cap, hammering nails at a Habitat for Humanity project. Tina standing next to Skin Burke at the ribbon-cutting for Vineyard Estates, her smile radiant. Tina after September 11th, leading the city's memorial service, her head bent in prayer. Corina took notes as she went through the archives. Widowed mother, one son... She scrawled a question, where is the son? Another note, husband? She focused the story down to a summary lead and the facts, tacked on a working head, body in field, believed to be former mayors. As she waited for her computer to shut down, 
she pressed the button next to the red blinking light on her phone. Probably nothing, but she couldn't turn her back on unheard voicemail any more than she could leave a letter unopened. The first two were guilt calls from her mother, the Karina Star Sixth, before they had a chance to do their intended job. The third was an announcement for her younger sister, Guadalupe, that she was coming to spend a night next week with her. Oh, great. No immediate action required. Her mother's calls were beyond her control, and Lupita came and went, using her condo as a motel, whenever she and their mother fought. Corina pressed the star button, then the number six, to delete the message, then went on to the last one. Hey, Corina, this is Skin. Got to talk to you ASAP about the story you're working on, the mayor. Call me as soon as you hear this. He repeated his phone number twice, his voice tense, unrecognizable from the one on his radio commercials for Vineyard Estates. How could Skin Burke know what she was working on? He'd been a source when she worked in the business department, and she hadn't talked to him since her promotion. She called his office and house, leaving messages at both. No luck. She would have to try again on the way home. The strangled quality in his voice troubled her. Skin was not easily rattled. He'd come up the hard way, from a manufacturer of security systems to one of the city's most successful developers. What was it about Tina Kellogg's probable murder that could make him sound so agitated, maybe even scared? Chapter 4 Sunday, June 3rd, 6.45 p.m. Ivy Dyser stood outside J.T.'s door, trying to look patient. It was good form to show respect for lower management, to wait for an invitation or at least a notice. When he finally looked up, he gave her a frown. Trying to sneak up on me, he asked. Not at all. Just wanted to talk if you have a minute. He gave her a look that said she had to be kidding. On a Sunday night, you came down here for a chat? I have a dinner date later on and thought I'd drop in on the way. She leaned against the door to his office, and when the expected invitation wasn't offered, entered anyway and sat. I wanted to see what came down with the body they found. He surveyed her with narrowed eyes. Looks like it's Mayor Kellogg. I sent Karina to cover it. That surprised her. Cooperation was the one word sorely lacking from his extensive vocabulary. A fine choice. That pleases me, J.T. Don't be too pleased. I sent her because I couldn't find Henderson. You snooze, you lose, as Chenault always says. When you tell him about it, please point out that Henderson didn't snooze. He just took a Sunday off. Of course. She stretched out in the chair and studied the smudge on the leg of her pants. She should have known better than to wear white down here. Unconcerned as J.T. pretended to be, she knew he'd watched her stretch out in the chair. How'd Karina do, she asked. So far, so good. Of course, she doesn't have Henderson's experience. Neither did Henderson when he was 28. You need to give her more assignments like this. Dead bodies in fields? Although he kept his voice clipped and polite, she'd have to be blind to miss the disdain he telegraphed. Well, she knew how to deal with disdain, and so did their publisher, Brandon Chenault. I'm saying that I want to see more than one byline coming out of Matthew Henderson's department. I know what you're saying. You have a problem with that? He glanced down at the brochure he'd been holding, then leaned across the desk, dropping the pretense as she knew he would if she pushed him far enough. 
I have a problem with taking a promising reporter out of the business department when they're so short-handed there already. We're short-handed all over. I don't have to explain the economy to you. We have to work harder and smarter, that's all. But we don't have to get rid of good employees just because they're earning more than the new ones. Ivy leaned back in the chair, letting him consider what he'd just said. Is that what you think I'm trying to do? Get rid of good employees? He wadded up the brochure and tossed it in the trash can. The famous J.T. Temper. Good. She'd come back later, retrieve the remains of the brochure. One never knew when something so apparently meaningless might come in handy. She had a whole drawer with neatly labeled exhibits just like this. I don't know what you're trying to do. In the six months you've been in the job, my whole damn staff's been rearranged. It happens that way sometimes, she explained calmly, especially with the economy so uncertain. What's happening in Mexico could launch another war. Let's hope not. Not that they'll call it a war. Broke as the state of California is, it is one of the top ten economies in the world. They'll say we're restoring political stability or something, but it will be a war, and our financial picture will get even worse. I know, I know, the economy sucks, and everyone is being sacrificed because of it. He spoke without emotion, secure, she thought, black and over 40, and not really giving a damn about anything but planning his next vacation. We want to keep you, J.T., she said. I'm sure you do, even though we know you're looking. He paused just a moment, but the surprise lingered in his eyes. Everyone's looking. But as you so eloquently put it, the economy sucks. She smoothed her slacks against the curve of her legs. Take care of Corina, okay? He, of course, pretended not to notice her little display. I'll do that anyway. It's my job. Yes, she said, rising. It is. Chapter 5 Sunday, June 3rd, 8.35 p.m. Corina tried to call Skin's office two more times from her car on the way home. On the second try, he answered. Corina, it's about time. He sounded breathless. I've been trying to reach you since I got your message. I was rounding up some stuff I want to show you. Just walked in the door. We need to talk right away. You're the only one down there I trust. His voice began to fade, and she pulled to the side of the street to keep from losing the signal. What's so urgent? You know I'm covering hard news now. This is hard news and hard ball, lady. That body they found today? It's Tina Kellogg, and Belmont killed her. A chill zigzagged through her. Why would Eugene Belmont kill Tina? Because she wanted me out of Vineyard Estates, because she found out what was really going on. What is going on? Something too big for us to stop. Believe me, I tried. They won't be happy till they start a war. He paused. What the hell? There's someone out there. Hang on for a minute, will you? Skin. She heard a sharp noise as if he'd dropped the phone. Then it went dead. Skin, are you there? Nothing. She turned her car around. Maybe she was blowing his phone call out of proportion. Maybe one of his old cronies had just stopped by for a visit. Either way, Corina knew. She couldn't just sit there. Skin had claimed Eugene Belmont murdered Tina Kellogg. He had abruptly ended their phone conversation. Was that reason enough to call the police? Would she look foolish if she did? What if Skin had just been in a hurry? What if he were with his fiancée somewhere? She had to just take a look around so that she didn't appear a total neophyte to Henderson and J.T. She got out of the car and headed toward the blaze of lights in the back. The yard was empty. 
shadows swallowing the fruit trees and flower beds. Skin? She felt silly calling out to anyone in this obviously uninhabited place. The gray enamel patio furniture was huddled in ghostly clusters around a black-bottomed swimming pool Skin kept for show. Always looking for an edge, he had worked out a deal with a pool contractor who had put it in for nothing in return for Skin's referring business to him. He never set foot in it, though, because he was terrified of water. Next to it, something glittered in the moonlight. Glass, a broken bottle of some kind. She willed the pool to be empty as the yard, but already the fear crawled up her arms, constricted her throat. She moved closer to it and forced herself to look, confirming what the silent part of her had already suspected. Pale, chalky white flesh, the texture of chicken meat, caught in the light and shimmered in the black water. She recognized the bald head and knew it was skin, his body unmoving, floating, with limbs splayed as though over a barrel, face down. Parental Guilt Call, 553. Mija, I didn't like the way you hung up on me. What's going on? I was just running down a story. I'll explain later when we can talk. We can talk now. How many hours those people make you work at that newspaper anyway? I said we'll talk later, Mama. I've got to go now. A long sigh. You don't have to work so hard. You know how much Lydia's boyfriend makes? Pete's an attorney. I'm sure he does well. I earn more than Lydia, though, or more than she did before she quit that paralegal job. Pete needs her at the office. There's nothing wrong with helping your man find success, Miha. That is the one lesson I wish I could teach you. You've taught me, Mama. You've taught me. Honest? You aren't just mocking again. Honest. Picture me before you. I'm crossing myself as we speak. Miha! I'll call you tomorrow and explain everything, okay? Right now I have to get some rest. Good night, Mama. That, ladies and gentlemen, was Bonnie Hearn Hill reading the opening chapters of her novel, If It Bleeds, about the life of journalist Corinne Vasquez, who, as a cub reporter, tried her best to prove herself as a skilled professional at the Valley Voice. We hope that in the process of finding out who killed the mayor and the newspaper's source, Mr. Skin, she'll be able to solve who committed all those murders and be accepted in that old boy network down there at the newsroom. Friends, Bonnie Hearn Hill has been one of the most consistently generous contributors to Valley Writers Read for, yea, all these many years. Indeed, she was one of only six writers who read for us in our very first season some 14 years ago. Bonnie is one of the most popular writers in Central California. Not too long ago, she sold the world rights to three of her novels to Mirror Books. In turn, If It Bleeds, from which she read tonight, and Primary Sources. She also is very much in demand as a teacher of writing. Indeed, many of our authors that you've heard on Valley Writers Read here are her former students. Thanks, Bonnie, for your fine story tonight. We wish you great success in all your literary endeavors and also, of course, hope that you'll be reading for us for many, many more seasons to come. And so we come to the end of another segment of Valley Writers Read. Thank you for listening. Next week, our writer reader will be Jeff Tannen. 
In the meantime, this is your host, Franz Weinschenk, wishing you and yours a great life story until we meet again. Good night. Valley Writers Read is a weekly series produced by Don Weaver and Franz Weinschenk for Valley Public Radio. Please join us again next Wednesday at the same time for another edition of Valley Writers Read.